So, can you hear me okay? Back is okay, or should I speak up? Okay. A little bit louder? Okay. So, whenever I start giving a talk, it's a little bit like this standing on the edge of like, um, what do you call that? When you jump into a swimming pool, like from a high level, and you just like look down and you go like, oh well. <laughs> I'm already up here and now I have to jump. So I noticed that moment of getting myself to jump. And here we go. So, um, so you made it through your second day of retreat. You're still all here, although some of you have confessed that they thought about leaving, <laughs> which is quite normal, honestly, um, because we have so much time and so many opportunities to think about all kinds of things. And of course, so quite naturally, the thought might come up like, why am I doing this? I have all these things to do, right? This long to-do list and all these things that are waiting and I'm not getting done and I'm here doing nothing. And I don't really feel fabulous and I don't feel like inside has hit me like a lightning bolt yet. So, and come on, it's already like two days in. Like how much longer does this take, right? <laughs> so, um, all very normal. And we actually call these... Um, especially like the first couple of days, the swamps. So you are at the end of the swamps and hopefully it will get easier from here on. And so those first couple of days are really often um, filled with um, going back and forth between um, sleepiness and restlessness, being like overly like too much energy and then crashing and then feeling like, oh, I haven't slept in weeks, right? And then the next thing I know, I'm sitting here and I can't even sit still because I have so much energy in the body. Anybody can relate to that? Some form of that? Yeah. So, and this is also why, for those of you who have been on retreat before, you're very familiar with um, what's coming next. Um, we have like two very popular, very helpful Buddhist lists that we bring around um, about this point in the retreat. And so the first one is what we call the list of the, the five hindrances. And so, um, and another topic that just keeps coming up in like basically everything that we teach is that we are always working with the personal and the impersonal. Right, so we look at like how this is really very personal to my life, and then we start to also see that on another level, it's also really impersonal. And so the the hindrances. So let me just ask you this, and it, it's just fun to do this and look around, because sometimes we can feel quite isolated and take like our mind states very personally. So let's just see, a show of hands, how many of you had in the last two days, or maybe just in the last couple of hours, um, um, wishes or desire for sense pleasure of some form? Maybe we were just thinking about lunch or dinner, or like a movie you wanted to watch. Just look around. I mean, just do yourself a favor, look around. If you know the outcome, you don't have to do that. Basically, everybody's hand went up. Thank you very much. <laughs> So, how many of you 
have experienced over these last two days or maybe just the last few hours, the opposite of that, really not wanting something in your immediate experience or something in your thoughts like that you were thinking about. So having aversion or resistance against something. Yes, yes, thank you. Usually, yeah, also most hands go up. Uh, um, So then... How many of you, like we've already had questions about that, I think, in the big group. How many of you have experienced some bouts of sleepiness or lethargy? Yes, thank you. (laughs) And then the opposite of that, restlessness, antsiness, or worry in the mind. Yeah, right? And then we have one more, (laughs) Uh, which is doubt. So doubt... um, is a little bit a tricky one because doubt. Uh, so doubt comes up in the form of um, either these practices aren't working, like I should be, I should have tried transcendental meditation, like the soul vipassana stuff that really isn't working. It could be like the the teachers don't really know what they're talking about. Or it could be like, obviously, everybody's getting it here because they all sit so quietly and peacefully around me, just I am unable to do this. So some version of that, anybody? Yes, thank you. (laughs) All right, so you see you're in really good company. You're in really good company. And what I really love about this is that, so this is a traditional list, and this list is um, a couple of thousand years old. And because sometimes we can trick ourselves into thinking, oh, this is just the mind today, or this is just because we live such busy lives. But the Buddha already described it. And I mean, believe me, he only made lists like once he was really sure that this is really something that happens to a human brain, right? And this is what human brains do. And um, so the idea that we have around these hindrances is that it's, they get, we call them hindrances because they get in the way of us experiencing the way our mind really is, our heart mind or whatever we want to call this. And often the image that we use is that the heart mind is like the infinite sky, the blue sky. It's clear, it's vast. And the hindrances are like the clouds that appear. And they are, well, if we're really thinking about it, they are impermanent, right? Because they're dependent on causes and conditions. They arise, they're here for a while, and then they shift and change. But the thing is that um, sometimes we have been under such (laughs) an overcast sky, right? From one of the hindrances, there's also something like, usually like we have one or two favorites out of those fives, Right? So it's really good to get very familiar with them and saying like, oh, here we go again. But sometimes they can be so persistent that we forget that there actually is a blue sky above that. And then we feel, right, life is resistant. Life is hard. Or like life is just this constant yearning, wanting, searching, needing, like fulfillment and not being able to get it. So the painfulness of that. Um, And the thing really is that 
for us who live a householder life, right? So we have lives with families, with jobs, like, like we have like very complex lives outside this retreat situation, and most of us do. And um, this is a breeding ground, very fertile breeding ground for the hindrances. And so we might rarely ever have moments where it feels like the, the clouds part and we experience the blue sky which for me really is one of the reasons why I love retreat practice so much. Because there it is because, right, we take a lot of the distractions away. The mind does calm down. So even though it might not feel that way, right? Because like we are, our experience really shifts how we see ourselves. But for those of you who've been on retreat, you know that once you go back out there, it can be quite scary, right? (laughs) Quite loud and overwhelming. And we have to get used to that again. So we slow down and then we might have more moments or maybe you already had a moment where suddenly the sky breaks open and you go like, oh yes, of course, of course, right? And it usually when we have this, it's not that it's something like, oh, I never thought that didn't, that existed. It was, it's really more like it's a, it's a recognition. It's often this deep recognition of like, oh, I forgot. How could I have forgotten? Right? And it's very nourishing. And it's so, sometimes it feels like we can have like, sometimes I call these like glimpse moments where the curtains part and you really remember who you truly are. And it can be so deep that you will never forget that again. And you want to come back to this place. And retreat practice in many ways, of course it's not the only way, like our life is really deeply interwoven with our practice. So the formal practice, the retreat practice, but then of course like our everyday practice, right? So Bob mentioned yesterday like having a family, like having children, I have three children, so that's definitely like a huge part of my practice, a very humbling part of my practice, honestly. And so it's interwoven, right? And so we try to bring more of what we learn here, what we learn on retreat, what we learn on the cushion. We try to bring that into our lives. And then, of course, what we see there, what we learn there, we also bring that back onto the cushion and onto retreat. But so for me, really, it is um, at least a possibility that even on a relatively short retreat, like we can have more moments where we remember we remember that this is who we really are. And that all of the rest, that is just, it's appearances, it's personalities. And we need that, of course, right? We need these identities to move through the world, the identity of a parent, the identity of a friend, of a sister, of a co-worker, of an activist, I mean, whatever that is. We do need that. But we don't need to hold on to it so closely. And we notice when we do that, when we can kind of release the grip a little bit and put it down when we don't need it, there can be so much freedom just rushing in, in like very ordinary moments, just like moments like driving, for example, right? So when you drive your car or right here, like when you're like walking from here down to the dining hall, you don't have to be a mom or you don't have to be a daughter, you don't have to be a brother, right? And because that right now, those are just things that appear often out of habit, like in in our mind, like the stories that just keep arising. And we're so fascinated and we're so invested in them that we keep 
repeating them. And to give ourselves really the freedom to put these stories down. And we can do that quite gently, right? So that it doesn't have to be like a forceful thing that we do. But just to see like, well, I put it down. Let me put it down a little bit. And I won't go anywhere, I promise you. Just in case you're afraid that your stories will <laughs> disappear if you put them down. They won't. <laughs> They're very tenacious. <laughs> um, yeah, so the hindrances. The hindrances. So how do we work with the hindrances? Um, first of all, as I said, for me, it's very helpful to know this list has been around for thousands of years. So it's just like, okay, so this is just something that the brain produces and the more distractions there are, so the more of these hindrances will be there. And so first of all, what's very important, especially as we're newer to mindfulness practice, is the first step is always to notice to be aware. So what is that? Like, can we even name it? And then when we do this, what we see is that the hindrances come with a flavor, right? I don't know. I mean, you can really experience that for you. For me, the, um, the first one, the desire, so for sense pleasure, it has like my body does something like that kind of thing, right? So moving towards and I get excited and I want that. And it has a very like particular kind of energy. While the next one, aversion, is really like, mm, right? So I can, ooh, I can really feel that in my body. Like I tense up against whatever that is that I don't want. Because in a way, like our body and minds are very simply built or very efficiently built. Let's put it that way, right? So we just have like one way to like things and we have one way to not like things. And wanting really comes like this, like reaching out, wanting to pull it towards me. Not wanting something is the opposite. I push it away. And that also is like how the body responds, even if it's just a mental thing that I want or that I don't want. So the first step is to notice it and to see and to see that it's not personal. Because the thing is, as soon as we're in a grip of one of the hindrances, it is as if we had like glasses on that have the color of those hindrances. Right? So we talk about like the rose-colored glasses when we're in, in love, right? And we know that suddenly like things are easy, right? People don't get on our nerves so much and everything is just wonderful, right? And we're very able to just put like unpleasant stuff to the side, right? And then we also know like when we're in a grumpy mood or we're really upset about something, that also of course colors all of our experience. And the interesting thing is that the hindrances actually, they will make our, uh, the content match to the quality of the hindrance, right? So when you're caught in a state of wanting, right, you can think about something and you are more likely to want that too. Or your mind will come up with more things that you might possibly like, right? And you could like salivate about while you're sitting here in meditation. And um, the opposite is true. So when you're in aversion mind or a resistance mind, so like then everything is not right. I remember a retreat um, uh, years ago where I was, um, I don't know, I was, there was a retreat that I went to, like a 10-day retreat that I went to like every year. And, but that year is just like my room sucked the teachers were just not getting it across. Obviously, like all the yogis looked very unhappy. The food was lousy. I don't know like what kind of cooks they had at Yucca Valley Retreat. So, uh, <laughs> um, so some of you have been there. So, 
And it took me, I think, like three days until, and I, I, I was a very experienced practitioner at that point, until it dawned on me, like, oh, that's aversion. That is aversion. And the moment, and it was really just like the moment I said that to myself, I was like, like slap your forehead moment, of course, right? But before that, it was everything around me that was wrong. Nothing was right. And so once I noticed that, I knew, okay, so I'm in the grip of aversion, and it didn't go away immediately, but I knew enough to know it would go away eventually. And I wouldn't get so caught in the content anymore. So the content will always match our experience, and this is why we get sucked into the content, right? And so part of our practice actually is to not go into the content, because that will always prove that you're right, that you have all the right to feel this particular way, but to see like, oh, no, this is actually what it feels like, what it feels like in my body and in my experience. So that is the practice, to see when it comes up, and then to name it to yourself and see where does that show up, like in your body, in your body-mind system, but in particular in the body. And then the next step is to also to be aware when it's absent, right? Because we usually, often we don't like the hindrances, maybe except for the desire one, so that, that's usually a pleasant one, and we're happy to... Um, follow it until we really notice that desire also becomes painful at some point. So that might be an exploration, right? So we're thinking like, oh, if I would only get that pleasant thing, right? That would be wonderful. But when we're sitting here and we're really yearning, we're wanting something, we can quite easily get to the point to notice, oh, that is painful too. There's really also quite easily some, like the dukkha, right? We mentioned, I think, um, Anushka mentioned like the dukkha, like this unsatisfactoriness of that, right? There's a pulling. There is, it's not contentment. It's just something that also says the moment as it is right now is not okay. I need something else, right? Basically, that's what all the hindrances are saying. This is not okay. I don't want this right now. So, and then it can be really helpful to also be aware when the hindrances are absent. Right? Because sometimes it's quite amazing because we don't make them come and we don't make them go. And to see that they often just like come and go on their own whim, right? And to see like, oh, so this is what resistance feels like. Or boredom, which is a form of resistance, by the way. So for those of you who are like bored stiff doing walking meditation, right? <laughs> or in the si- in the sitting in the hall thinking like, what am I doing here? What am I doing? I'm so bored. I'm so bored. I'm so bored. Right? So that is also, that is a form of uh, resistance or aversion. And so just to notice, what does that feel like? And then to notice that suddenly it can be gone. Like you haven't done anything, right? You just do your next step and suddenly you're really engaged and think like, oh, this is kind of nice. I like this, right? What happened to boredom? Where did it come from? Where did it go? Um, And then as we're getting more into this, there are also like practices how we can support the hindrances not arising. But this is really more, so we have to be careful, especially for people who are new with meditation, that we don't use the antidotes and the practices to make the um, hindrances go away uh, like a servant of our resistance towards the hindrances. Right? Because that's usually what we don't like the hindrances. So we think like, oh, an antidote, let me do this, right? And then so we're back big time into doing mode. While the first step is always to 
to notice and to acknowledge and see what happens when I actually don't do anything. If I don't put more energy into changing the way it is, right? Because the practice really of vipassana is to see things as they are and to trust more deeply that actually just applying mindfulness, mindfulness like in the big sense of like the the sati, like from the scriptures, it has a wholesome quality. And so to really be more curious, isn't that often enough or could it just be enough if I just bring like this kind awareness to the situation without the need or not to do it in order to get rid of where I am. Does that make sense? So to really to see like, so just let me hold this in awareness and let's let's see what happens in kind awareness if possible, right? And then if we're noticing, and this is something that it feels like that should be like a six hindrance because it's so prevalent here, it's judging. Anybody has judged themselves or others in the last couple of days here? Yeah, your experience or yeah, just others, yeah? right? Of course we do that. And so that's also very painful. And we can also bring awareness to that and see like, oh, this is what judging feels like, right? Judging is actually quite painful. Judging ourselves, but also judging others. There's just like, it kind of, it deepens the gap between us. And it also deepens like the internal gap between I, me, and myself. (laughs) So there's lots more to say about the hindrances, but I actually want to talk about some other things too. Um, I think you get an idea about the hindrances and um, how to do like first steps working with the hindrances. Um, So the next list that I wanted to mention is what we call the three marks of existence. We've already mentioned them where they came up in different parts several times. So the first one is the dukkha, right? So dukkha is the word, so this is usually why we even use that, even though we try not to use a lot of Pali words when we're teaching here. But this is, it's very, very hard to translate, right? I, 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 at one point there is like, a, um, like from a, a very well-known Buddhist scholar, Bhikkhu Bodhi. He, I think he has a list of like 15 or 16 different words that help us get an understanding of what dukkha is. And, but basically it's really, it's like stress, it's unsatisfactoriness, it's suffering. It's like this, like th- there's always something, right? So like if, if that, like if we get this right, then there's, there's something else. Like there's always something not quite right. And sometimes it's really small things, right? And then sometimes it's uh, huge things in life, of course, as well. And it doesn't mean like all life, suffering not at all but it just means it's just like inherent in the human life to experience suffering and to experience pain and often that can just be very helpful to see that this is actually not our fault that we sometimes we really get this very strong message from our society that if we would and especially I have to say like so I'm I didn't grow up here I'm, I'm from Germany and but here so this is like the whole like the American dream is really a setup for um, unhappiness in a way. Because it basically says, well, um, if you would try harder, right, you would make it and then you would be happy. 
And we all know on an intellectual level that's complete nonsense, right? But I think it's so ingrained, it's so ingrained in this culture is that if you only try hard enough, and we get this message with all like the, the Hollywood movies, right? If you're only, if you have the will, you will succeed. It's such rubbish, really. And it creates so much suffering. And it's so not based really on how things are. Um, so dukkha is not our fault. Or like our friend Wes who teaches upstairs, he has a book out that says, you are not your fault. I like that. <laughs> so don't take yourself so personally. Which So then the second, the second um, mark is impermanence. Things change. Right? So that's another thing that's just inherent in things that have causes and conditions. When conditions change, things will change. That's just inevitable. And sometimes we very much welcome change, right? We're praying for change. And at other times, it's just the worst thing that can happen to us. If we're losing something that is precious to us, right? Like our health or our um, capacities to do things, maybe our youth, right? Maybe, I don't know, I mean, there's so many things that is very painful. And yet, like, as we know, like, change is the one thing we can be sure of. And impermanence. And part of the practice that we're doing here is really, it is an impermanence practice, right? To see the body and to see the changing body. And, like, we've all lived long enough to have seen the body change. Even just, like, from growing up as a child to being an adult, the body changed completely, completely. And then the last one is, um, that's often a bit harder to understand, uh, really in a visceral level, it's none of this is personal. And there is no, like if we go deeper into Buddhist psychology or philosophy, there is no, no solid self, right? So I was pointing to that when I was talking earlier about like our identities, the parts of our personality, like who we think we are, how we see ourselves, how the world sees us, how we make the world see us. And it's very complex, right? But what we can really see is the more we can see that there is not one permanent self, or to see if we believe in that, how much suffering that creates, right? So that can be a huge source of freedom. If we're not really um, so invested in being a particular kind of person. I'll give you an example for that. So, um, <laughs> I was just, even as I was about to talk about it, I noticed like what came up, which is a strong part of my identity. So, I, I was trained as an OBGYN, so that is my actual profession. And um, I haven't worked in my profession since we moved here 14 years ago to the U.S. for many different reasons. One being that I really got into the whole MBSR, secular mindfulness training people, and um, also becoming a Dharma teacher. So that's a longer story, but I never um, set out to give up my profession. For me, being a physician actually was always a calling. And... 
which is of course one of the reasons why I love this retreat so much because it's just it's the body and it's anatomy and it's like the personal and the impersonal so it feels like I can really merge like some of my passions together but I still feel like after all these years such a strong identification with being a physician and I can I can notice that still like give you an example so like when I'm in a circle with friends and they talk about their whatever diseases um, and people forget to comment in some way that I'm the physician and that I know about these things I get upset right can you relate like in your circles it's just like we have an identity and I need to be seen as that right and if I'm not seen I feel like oh right so part of me just goes like look at me look at me right and I need that from the outside and it's still amazing to me like to this point um, how strong that identification is and of course I can see right it's a very prestigious identification right and so um yeah, there, there are a lot of things that come with this, and I can see that quite clearly, and yet it is very strong. So for me, really, my practice is to see when it comes up and to hold it with kindness, to see like, oh, here she is again, right? And she needs to be seen in a particular way. And I'm thinking, like, part of me, when I tell you that, is saying, like, why are you telling this story? Do you need to be seen as a physician so that everybody <laughs> in the room knows that you're a physician, right? So you can see, like, the double bind here. <coughs> Anyways, so, um, <coughs> which brings me to the next piece. So really the personal and the impersonal side of the body, right? So we're practicing body practices here. And um, so being trained as a physician, so part of, um, actually for me, I was always really fascinated with um, skeletons. So from a very early age on, and I have no idea like how that started, I think I was always very interested actually in animals and animal behavior. And from there, I was very interested in, so what happens with animals like once they die? And I just, I still to this day think like a skeleton is one of the most beautiful things out there. I just marvel really at the beauty, at the design of a skeleton. Like that's just the foundation of like the whole, how we can move, how we can walk or as an animal, like the, the function really. It's so, it's so beautiful. I mean, like my husband does that with cars. I just do that with skeletons. So. <laughs> um, and so I actually, as a child, I got into um, collecting skulls. Um, and so I lived in a rural area, and I um, would, when I would just roam the woods, I would come across skulls, and I would take them home, and I had a whole shelf of, like, animal skulls, and again, I thought they are so beautiful, like the bones, like the, the jaw bone, like of, of like some of the animals, like of a rat, for example, it's so exquisite, and it really it, it just brought such a deep sense of awe in me always. And um, so, when we're, you're trained as a physician, you see the body as an object, and that is actually a good thing, 
right? In many ways. Of course, like you want to, like if you're when you're talking to a person or a patient, of course you want to see the whole patient. But like I was trained as a gynecological surgeon, right? You don't want your surgeon to be empathic while they're doing surgery on you. You really want them to see this as an object and to, to do their craft, to do their skill, and pretty much have no emotions whatsoever, right? Because that is what is needed when you're performing that job. And that also means, for example, like as a physician or as a surgeon, at least like that was like how I learned it, you don't do surgery on people you love or people you know, because then you're not objective anymore. Right? And there's even this literature showing that there are more mistakes, of course. How could it not be? Right? So we're losing our objectivity. Um, so, but it's so interesting because in a way it is an object and then it's not. So I remember at one point I did, as I did my um, surgery rotation, um, I was um, uh, an assistant to... Um, um, to surgery where a man had to get his uh, right leg amputated, like half, half, in, half, uh, half femur, so half the um, thigh. And um, I remember, because it was a very visceral experience, so I remember standing and holding the leg while the surgeon with his saw would cut the femur bone. And so I really remember, I still have that in my body, that moment when the leg was severed, because then suddenly I was holding the leg. Before then, it was still attached to the patient. And what I noticed, and I thank goodness I had a table under me, because at that moment, my legs buckled. And I could not, so basically the surgeon had told me, like, so once the leg is off, just like bring it over to that other table. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I was just like, I, I was like, really, I, I was sh- shortly before fainting. And so like one of the nurses came over and just took the leg and put it away. And I was just like <laughs> sitting down thinking like, wow, that was a very intense experience. Because in that moment, it was not an object, right? It was just a very, very weird thing that had happened in that moment. And I felt completely, really overwhelmed and unprepared for that. I thought I was cool before that, but (laughs) not so much. Um, So there is this, and we have, of course, all these associations with the body, right? And with different body parts. And it's hard, and it's often hard, and it's really part of our practice here to, or the invitation that we give out to you is to see, to see this. This is your leg, this is my leg, in this case, not your leg. (laughs) Um, And it's just a leg. It's both, right? It's this, for me, it's just like, I love this, contradiction which is basically part of it's for me it's really at the core of all of my practice that everything is exactly just this me and it's completely impersonal right and there is a wonderful quote from a um, non-dual teacher um, Nisargadatta Maharaj I can never really pronounce his name correctly and he basically said, when I look inside and I see I'm nothing, that's wisdom. 
And when I look outside and I see I'm everything that's love. And between the two, my life flows. And I think for me, this really sums up like the core of my practice. And this is for me really what we're also doing here. So it's always, it's this paradise. I get goosebumps just talking about this. There's, it's just this mystery and I can't wrap my head around it. And sometimes I feel like, oh, there it is, right? And I, I get it, I feel it. And then it's gone again. And it's just like, it feels like the curtains are down again. And then they lift again. And I think it is such a beautiful practice. And really, as I said earlier, for me, it's a practice of recognition. A practice of recognition and of homecoming. Homecoming. So when the curtain lifts, to say like, oh, yes, of course, I recognize that. Right? This is nothing like, I knew it was there even if I had forgotten. But the moment I see it, I know, I know in my bones that this is true. So let's just for a moment feel, go into this, um, what it feels like from the inside. Because we also have this very complex thing of like um, how we think our body is being perceived by the outside and often is, right? So it's often really based on, on empirical data over our lifetime, right? And it starts with like how, like what were the messages that we have gotten as children? How were we seen? Like when we were babies, when we were children, we need to look for confirmation outside to see who am I? what kind of person I am, right? And then we start to internalize that. And then first it's the caregivers, but then of course it's like, it's society, it's, it's school, it's our neighborhood. It's, it's like all of this just come in. So all these little messages that we're getting from who am I as a person, right? So that's what we get from the outside. And we all know like how deceptive that is. Right? Because the way that we see each other is just, like we mentioned it a number of times, it's just the surface. It's just the surface and we have like this first impression and we can't do anything about it because we're so conditioned. So what we can actually do about this is to bring more awareness to it and to practice a lot of loving kindness for ourselves and also for the areas where we notice that we have prejudice, right? Because it's like so ingrained, so what can we do about it? There are actually some data really showing that like loving kindness practice can change that. And then our awareness practice to see like, when do I contract? I see a person and I was like open and suddenly something in that person, it makes me go like, Ugh. do I notice that, right? Am I aware of that? And then what can I do to not act from that place? And I think this is exactly what we do in our meditation practice, right? We notice when we contract, we notice what comes up, the reactions, right, with our emotions. Exactly the same thing. So like the internal and the external is not separate. So what we do here actually has very deep and very important implications on what are we doing out there in the world? What are we doing or what are we doing here? What are we doing with other people? So... But if we're really um, thinking about, so what is that actually that we experience when we feed our bodies, right? So 
we are not, I mean, like, let's just do this. So, um, when, just for a moment, feel into an area of, of the body that you can actually feel and feel maybe into an area of the body that you don't particularly like, right? But just bring awareness to that area and see, can you get any sensations, right? So we're not looking for judgment. We're not looking for visualizations. And we're not looking... Um, also, like if it's physical pain, that might be a little bit harder. So maybe if you can choose an area that is not in physical pain right now, just more like an area that you don't like. And if you feel into that area, what do you actually feel? So what we feel is just what our nervous system can get us, right? So it can bring pressure can bring temperature, it can bring proprioception, meaning like where is that part in space right now, right? Um, maybe there's an inter, there's a tingling, maybe, yeah, so there's warmth, right? But the actual sensation is not a judgment, right? So you don't feel, I don't know, the wrinkles, or you don't feel your, I don't know, your big thighs or your too small thighs or I mean whatever that is. That is a judgment. That is not an actual perception. And so what we really want to do with this practice is to see, so what the noting practice, the noting practice is not giving anything that is, has a judgment to it. Right? So noting practice that we do in Vipassana practice. Just so, so what do you notice? And sometimes we don't feel anything, but then other times it's just like, well, I know like the, right? So my right arm is just touching here, kind of my torso. And so I can feel a little bit of that. And I can feel like tension in that area of the shoulder. And I can feel right now my arm, like my forearm is warm right now, but I also noticed that while I was talking, I was several times like shoving my sleeve up and down, depending on whether it felt a little bit cool or a little bit warm. So I'm adjusting to that. But none of that actually has a value on it, a value on it, right? So, and it can be very helpful when we're doing this practice because to, to just to be more clear, is this really a sensation that I'm feeling? And I might not like the sensation, but that's a second step right? Or is that just the aversion to the part which really comes from the thinking mind and comes from the emotional field, but in that moment has actually nothing to do with body sensations, right? So that can be a very interesting field to explore. To What is that that I'm actually feeling? Do I feel my judgments? Or how do the judgments interfere with how do I actually experience a body part. And then what we notice is um, really more the impersonal nature. This is what pressure feels like. This is what warmth feels like. This is what I don't know, air against the skin feels like. And none of that is personal. 
So even if you are now with a body part that experiences pain, this is what pain feels like. And then we can go even more. So pain is such a loaded uh, term, right? We can even go away from using the term pain and just really be more specific. So how does that show up? Is that a pressure? Is that hot? Is that cold? Is that more like a stabbing? Is it a searing? Is that like, what is that in that moment? And then as I do this, can I become more aware that also these sensations actually change? They're not staying exactly the same. See, now it's cold, so I pull it down again. (laughs) So... um, for the, I'll try to really end at 8.30. I think they have a meeting here tonight. So um, I want to um, kind of wrap it up a little bit, but bring in one more aspect that I find extremely helpful with this practice, which is kindness. And kindness and compassion. For Because it's, it's hard. It's often really hard to be with the body, to be with the body that maybe isn't functioning the way we wish it would function or it looks the way or doesn't look any more the way. So it's, it's very complicated. And so the more kindness we can bring into this practice, the easier actually it becomes. right? And this is why I was saying earlier, so it's not just awareness, but it's kind awareness. And the kind awareness... Just for me, it's like the practice of saying, of course. And of course means like, of course you would feel that way, right? Of course there might be sadness, or there might be anger, or there might be confusion, or there might be resentment. And there's nothing wrong with this. And again, so the light of kind awareness, we can bring that into a situation without the need to change it and see what happens if we just hold that. And you probably or many of you will know this poem, but I love it very much, which is um, Mary Oliver's Wild Geese. And so the poem goes, you don't have to be good. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. So for me, this poem really like a couple of things stand out. Obviously, like you don't have to walk on your knees through the desert (laughs) repenting. 
So being aware of the inner repenter here on retreat. And then what does that mean to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves? I think that's a really beautiful question to see what is that that this animal body needs? And this can be a really a very tender question to ask. So it's what do you need? Not necessarily what do you want, but what do you need? And to really ask with this kind <coughs> curiosity, that question, dropping that question in, like what do you need? And to see what comes up and allowing the body to answer, to answer you, right? Because it really comes back to the Martha Elliott uh, poem that Bob was quoting last night. It's like your history is here inside your body. Um... Maybe let's just end with this and just sit in silence for a moment and I have another short poem for you that I can't get myself to not share with you. So. <laughs> So this one is from Barbara Hurt. It's called On Silence. Silence arrests flight so that in its refuge the need to flee the chaos of noise diminishes. We let the world creep closer. We sit as if to let the heart like a small animal, get its legs on the ground. Thank you.